Father, we thank you for your presence, Lord. Lord, as we open up Scripture this evening, Father, we ask you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, to help us to understand, help us to listen, to speak, to commune with you, Lord, through Scripture. Father, we thank you for all of the goodness that you have given us in our lives. We thank you that you are always here, Father. No matter where we find ourselves, no matter which end of the spectrum we find ourselves from day to day, Lord, you inhabit every single millimetre of our lives. Father, just open up your word to us this evening. Open up our hearts, Father. Help us to worship you, to understand you. Lord, speak to us, Lord. Your church is listening. Amen. Well, I've always loved the Gospel of Mark. It's very simple. And for a simple man, that helps. It's also rather short. And for a simple man, that also helps. So this evening, we're going to be starting to have a look at Mark. And I'm hoping, through the weeks, the months, the years, to preach through the whole book, verse by verse. So we read and we cover and we understand the whole book in its entirety. Because what we tend to do is to look at Scripture, we take a little bit here and we take a little bit there, we blow this bit up, and we forget about all the stuff that's around it. So by looking at a whole book all the way through, start to finish, looking at the themes, looking at what's going on, what it means to us, we'll have a deeper meaning of Scripture. And today we are reading, not surprisingly, the first chapter, verses 1 to 8. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptised by him in the river Jordan. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptise you with water, but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, I've always found the best place to start something is the beginning. As I said to you, I am a simple man. 
I've also found that if you're going to make a statement, you better have some evidence to back that statement up. Mark, thankfully, does both. Mark doesn't try to be clever or complicated. Mark tells us like it is. And he immediately wants the reader of his gospel, his good news about Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, He wants us to know exactly where he is coming from. He dives straight into the Old Testament, to Malachi and Isaiah. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Now immediately... Mark introduces us to this character called John the Baptist. This, Mark is saying, is that voice calling from the wilderness. Now the straight paths that he was talking about are the calls to repentance for Israel. The call for them to turn away from sin and find a new path, a straight path that leads God into their hearts and, by association, ours. Mark has shown us that the prophecies are being fulfilled. So who was this John chap? Where did he come from? Why is he doing what he does? Why is he living in the barren and inhospitable wasteland. If we go to Luke's Gospel, we find out a little bit about him. We've got some very interesting information on old John the Baptist in Luke's Gospel. He introduces us to Zechariah and Elizabeth, a married couple of advanced years, Elizabeth is unable to have a child. But they clearly want one because when God tells Zechariah that he's going to be a father, it says that uh, his prayers were answered. So obviously Zechariah's been praying for a child. Luke tells us that they were told this baby was going to be quite special. In fact, this baby was to grow up and prepare the people of Israel to welcome the Lord. The child was so special that even before he was born, he was to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And during Elizabeth's sixth month of pregnancy, she went to see Mary who had also received the message. And there's a really lovely bit. Luke tells us that when Elizabeth came near to Mary, the baby just kind of leapt and started kicking, was like getting excited because he was in the presence of Jesus. Although Jesus was just a fetus, he was excited to be in the presence of the Lord. You see, because the Holy Spirit, even though John was only a six-month-old fetus or child himself in the womb, 
the Holy Spirit was teaching this unborn baby how to live in the presence of God. How to respond to the presence of God. So we can see that John's beginnings were not unimportant. He's related to Jesus. Mary and Elizabeth, they think, were cousins. He was a miracle child and was filled with the Spirit of God whilst in the womb. We call him John, but of course that's just the English translation of the Latin, of the Greek, and whatever else you want to throw in there. The Hebrew, his name was Yohanan. Yohanan. Yohanan, my boy. Yohanan. It means God's grace. Now, when you think about how we name children, we give them mostly a name that we like, yeah? Occasionally, we'll look at one of those books and see what it means. And uh, if anything kind of relates to that child through the name, it's usually coincidence. With Yohanan, it was not coincidence. They were given this child by the grace of God. This child was going to be an important man for God through his grace. So they weren't just shouting out, John, come in for your tea. They were shouting, God's grace, come in for your tea. Everyone would have heard Johanan and heard God's grace. Now I know what you're thinking, he's banging on about Luke uh, and we're supposed to be starting Mark. But you know, Scripture, you have to travel a bit. You can't always stay in one place. You see, I want you to be prepared for who John the Baptist is. Because that's the point. Preparation. If John was just a hairy-faced lunatic, wandering around the desert shouting at folk, why should we trust his testimony? If he is just some nutty loony, you know the ones with the signs, repent for the time is come, yeah, they just look thoroughly miserable. If he's one of them, do you listen to them? No, you do not listen to them. We need to know his credentials to know that he is sound. When a church wants to appoint a new minister, they look at his credentials. They look for evidence in his life that shows that he's working for God, or at least trying to work for God. They look at his credentials. They want to know what evidence he has to back up what he says. Now, the lazy view of Johannan, of John the Baptist, is that he was a weird, beardy guy wearing an itchy coat, eating bugs and honey. That's the lazy view. The lazy view says that he was just one of those nutters that threw people in the water. In truth, he was actually a very godly man. 
He was a man that lived in the wilderness not because he was an oddball hermit, but because God told him to. Maybe it was because he wanted to stay pure, to avoid the temptations that life would throw at him. We see in Luke that the angel told Zechariah that John was never to have wine or fermented drinks. Does that ring any bells with anyone? We spoke about it a few weeks ago. Remember when we looked at Numbers? There was a weird passage, you start going all the way through, you get to number six, and there's this thing about the Nazarite, how to, how to be a Nazarite. Well, the Nazarites were people that had taken a vow voluntarily, or they'd been set apart, been dedicated to God. They made a vow not to drink wine, not to even eat grapes or raisins or anything like that. They vowed not to cut their hair. They vowed to keep themselves pure. So they removed themselves from the camp because if they came into contact with a dead body, suppose they wake up and their wife was lying dead beside them or a family member had died in the night, all of a sudden they've become unpure, impure. So they have to take action. They have to, well, I'm going to have to live outside the village so I don't come into contact with this. They need to be pure. Well, John the Baptist seems to tick most of those boxes. In fact, I'm going to stick my neck out and say that John the Baptist was a Nazarite. Someone that made a vow to be set apart. Now, most chose only to take the vow for a certain time. Could be a week, could be a month, could be three months, could be a year, but it was a there'd be a definite end to it. For John, it seems like this was a lifetime calling to be a Nazarite. Now, there were two other Nazarites mentioned in the Bible. Samson and Samuel. Samuel, remember the little boy that was dedicated to go and work in the temple. Now, this tells us that John would have been seen by the people in Jerusalem and around Jerusalem, he would have been known as a holy man. People would have recognised this vow, had seen him, and recognised the fact that this man was pure. This man was working hard to be a good man of God and live up to his vow. Nobody could hold an accusation against him. There was no evidence against him. No one could create a false allegation against him because he'd removed himself from all of that. He was admired. People admired these Nazarites. They respected them. He was living a pure and consecrated life and he was calling people back to repent. And that meant a lot to these people. They listened to him because of the respect they had for the vow and the way he lived his life. He was also filled with the Holy Spirit, so you know he knew what he was doing. He was practicing the presence of God. 
He was listening constantly. He was living a life that meant he could hear what God was saying. And when he spoke, people listened and they respected that. They could see there was something different about him. When you speak to people, whose opinions do you value? Who do you listen to? If you're ill, if you wake up in the morning and you don't know what's wrong with you, whose opinion do you seek? Do you go to the doctors? I know that's very difficult these days. A doctor usually has, what, 10 years of medical school training, maybe 15, 20 years of general practice. You can trust them to know what they're doing. Maybe you go and see a consultant, maybe you go to a nurse, someone that's got training. Or maybe you just type it into Google or ask Alexa. Yeah, there we go. That's the truth of the matter, isn't it? And what responses do you get? I bet you probably look at the first five in that listing. Four of them will tell you that you are about to die imminently and the other one will probably be an advert for Viagra or something. Do you trust those voices? No. Because you don't know the credentials at which they're saying. They don't know you, they don't know your situation. It's just a random, almost, algorithm that just tells you a generic message. You want answers, you, get, you want to go to someone that has credentials. You need to be prepared before you make a decision. If you want advice on how to build a house and lay foundations, you go to a builder. You don't go to an accountant. If you want advice or you want to speak to God, you find someone who's walking with God, that you can see is walking with God, that you know is walking with God. Or you can just pick your Bibles up and read those and listen to God in there. Because he speaks, you can hear him when you open your books up and read them, he speaks. Sometimes he shouts. You need to be prepared now, could God have chosen anyone to prepare the way for Christ? Well, yeah, he probably could. I mean, he used a donkey to talk to Balaam, didn't he? So he could probably just use anyone he wanted to. But he wanted someone with credentials. He wanted someone that would prepare the way and make it good. This person had to be faultless and above any kind of reproach. And that was John. He was not just the voice calling from the wilderness. He was the only voice calling from the wilderness. He was the only voice at that time that could be trusted. The only one that could back up what he was saying and was living a life that could be visibly seen by others and by God to be good. You wouldn't get that with the priests. You wouldn't get that with the Levites, the Pharisees, the Sadducees and whatever other C's you want to put in there. 
you won't see that with them. If you looked at them under a microscope, pretty awful stuff going on. They needed purity of message to remind people what was going to happen. See, one of the reasons that scripture was written down was to prepare us. We write scripture down so that we can pass it on to the next generation so we can prepare them for what is coming. Just as John was doing. He was preparing the way for something that was coming. We're in that boat too. John was recognised as a man of God and even his clothes spoke. Now church tradition normally points out that he was wearing these um, camel hair coats and suits, whatever it was, because it was, it was uncomfortable, it was itchy, it was scratchy, and he would have been in agonising discomfort. And that was, you know, traditionally they'd say, you know, that's because you're know, a holy man and he has to suffer for his belief and, you know, and all that kind of, you know, pain equals closeness to God. But uh, really and truly, I don't really believe that, to be fair. Because if we read 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, it says, He had a garment of hair and a leather belt around his waist. Now in that verse they were talking about Elijah. Now Elijah was a messenger. He also went out and tried to pave the way for God to call people back. He went out into the wilderness. He called people. They didn't like it, but he called them. And we have this description in 1 Kings of a man with doing the same job wearing these clothes. But that could be just a bit of a coincidence, couldn't it? That could just be me clutching at straws, reading something into Scripture that really isn't there. So we go back to Luke and the angel of Gabriel said to Zechariah, and his wife Elizabeth, he will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord, the God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. So even before he was born, we have a little thing saying that this guy is going to be like Elijah. But if you're still not convinced Let's go to John's Gospel and see what John has to say. And he says in chapter 1, verse 20 to 21, the local priests and the Levites, now they were concerned that this John the Baptist chap was doing something like calling himself the Messiah. He wasn't the Messiah and he wasn't actually a very naughty boy either. So they sent this party out to go and find him. And when they saw him, the first thing they did, they clapped eyes on him, they went, oh my goodness, are you Elijah? Are you Elijah? John went, no, I'm not Elijah. But they recognised him because they, they, knew, they knew scripture. They were prepared. They had been prepared. They were waiting for the arrival. You remember Elijah disappeared, didn't he? We don't know what happened to Elijah. He just poof, poof, 
gone. The Lord took him somewhere. We don't know where. He didn't die. Poof, disappeared. They're waiting for him to come back four, five, six hundred years later. Are you Elijah? No, Elijah. bit like him, but not actually. So if you're still not convinced, we go to Matthew's Gospel and we read this bit that's written in red in my Bible. All the prophets and law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. God had been doing a work through John the Baptist to prepare the world, well, Israel, but later the world, for his coming. He wanted to get the preparation absolutely perfect. There could be no margin of error. He wanted people to recognise who John was. It was important because John was the person that we will see later in the passage that identifies Christ. Now John baptised people with water and he called them out and people came. He said the whole of Judean countryside, the whole of Jerusalem came out to be baptised. Now, if that's true, if they all were baptised and they were all forgiven for their sins, then why did Jesus come back? Because the work had been done by John the Baptist, yeah? But of course, he was just baptising them with water. And at that time, doing a baptism by water, they were quite used to that. Oh, there's another holy man coming along, is there? We can get a baptism. Right, let's do it. You can get baptised all day long if you want to. You can have five or six a day. Does that put you in the right place with God? Perhaps don't tell you that I told you this in the Baptist Union because they might get a little bit grumpy with me. But The baptism by water does not change, alter who you are with God. Now these people, they must have, they may have genuinely repented of their sins, but they obviously went back to them pretty darn quickly. Because he was just baptising with water. And he says, look, what I'm doing here is just a preparation. I'm getting you prepared for the one whose sandals I am not fit to untie. Don't look at me and think, wow, what a holy man, what's this? Look at this, wow. I'm just a warm-up act. I'm the comedian that comes on before the singer. When they come along, when Jesus comes, he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. I can't do that. All I can do is pour water over your head and give you a sense of fun and enjoyment. When he comes, he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. Now what is in that for us? We have to be prepared. We have to know our Bibles. We have to know where we stand. We have to know our sin. We have to know how to repent, how to move away from it. Because what the church is now is what John the Baptist was then. 
church, what is our role? What's our role? What do we do as church? What does church do? We prepare for Jesus. We prepare ourselves. We get in a right relationship with God. And then what else do we do after that? We prepare other people. John the Baptist was like a foreshadow of the church. Our job, our role, our calling is to prepare people for the coming of Jesus. Are you prepared? I don't think I am, not quite. We need to move to a place where we can finally kick those habits that we have, those sins that we have. You all know what your sin is. I know what mine is. And I'm fed up with it. I'm bored of it. I'm bored of it screaming at me and shouting at me, will you pay me attention, please? I'm here. And do you know what? Sometimes I listen to the damn voice. And then I feel separated from God. And then I don't want to be in his presence because I think he's angry with me. So I'm going to move away from God because he's angry with me because I've done this thing. And then I think to myself, well, I'm away from God now, so I could probably just go and do it a little bit more. Because he's angry with me anyway. And that is a very dangerous place to be. That's what they call backslidden. That's when you slide back to your old ways. You put it on and go, wow, I can do all of this. You feel great about it for a bit. And you think, wow, I'm getting away with this. Or maybe you feel a little bit guilty. There's a little bit of shame that starts to creep in. And you start gradually making your way back and then you listen to a worship song or you turn up to church and someone idiot at the front starts going on about, you should repent. And then all of a sudden you think, oh, yeah, I should do that. And you come back. And does God kick you out? No. Because your sins are paid for. It's not a one-time thing. You didn't become a Christian and go, right, okay, fine, all my sins are paid for, but everything I do from now until I die, whoa, I'm going to pay for it. No, it doesn't work like that. That would be a crap repentance. That would be a crap saviour. That's a cheap saviour. We don't have a cheap saviour. We have a saviour that just explores the boundless universe of repentance. A saviour that gives us forgiveness beyond which we can imagine. There is no condemnation in Christ. Your sins are forgiven now and forever. All you have to do is to keep talking to him. Trying. Repent. Try to move away. That's all repentance is, just to move away Change your mindset. We always talk about it, don't we? Change your mindset. Do you know what? If you get into that bit where the, where 
the devil starts speaking to you, do this, you know you want to. What should you do? Pray. Open the Bible. Do anything. Go and make a sausage sandwich, unless that's your sin, of course. Not, not saying that's mine at all. Just get out of there. There's that scripture, isn't there, about the adulterous woman. If you come across an adulterous woman, I think it's in Proverbs, what do you do? Run! Damn you, run! It's not like, no, figuratively run. I'm going to run, I'm going to use scripture. No, it says, just damn, run it! Go! Get out of there! Don't hang around! Run! You're useless! You'll cave in! Just run! That's what you do to sin. Run away from it. If you can't figuratively run away from it, sprint. Get on your wheelchair, get on your scooter, get in your car and drive. Get the heck away from it. Because we want it. We think we need it. When Jesus came, he paid the price. John's baptism was water. It didn't wash the sins away. It was symbolic. It's good to be baptised. He tells everyone else who you are. But the Holy Spirit, that's the baptism you want. And that's the point of John's message.